tones of Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass tell you that once again it's time for another edition of Fangraphs Audio. Hello, I'm Carson Sestouli and this is Fangraphs Audio. On this edition of the podcast, you can expect to find members of our crack team of baseball analysts, including Dave Cameron and Joe Polakowski. Also invited to the podcast is Matt Klaassen. In what follows, we discuss various and sundry topics, including, but not entirely limited to, recent news out of the commissioner's office that Bud Selig has denied an application from the McCourts, owners of the Dodgers, to establish a 17-year partnership with the Fox Sports Network, in effect financing the divorce between Frank McCourt and his wife, Jamie McCourt. After that, a discussion of the Marlins and owner Jeffrey Loria, and perhaps some comparing and contrasting with the current situation with the Dodgers. A look briefly at the Albert Pujols injury and what it means to the St. Louis Cardinals and their chances of contending in the NL Central. And finally, a not entirely comprehensive, but definitely far-flung discussion of the Fangraphs franchise player draft, including the pick of Mike Trout at number three overall by yours so very truly. It's young, it's pretty, and it can't possibly be beat. It is Fangraphs Audio, and it's happening right now. It is Fangraphs Audio. You maybe haven't heard us for a while. Uh, because we haven't recorded one for a while. But here we are. We have our crack team of baseball analysts and Matt Clausen here to join us. Let's meet them, or meet them again for the first time. Uh, calling us from the American South is Mr. Dave Cameron. Dave, how are you? Pretty good. I'm sure. pretty sure you called me, though. Right. So, okay, logistics, um, semantics. Uh, Dave, uh, are, you a, are you a homeowner? I, I am a homeowner, and uh, thankfully now uh, just an owner of one home instead of two. At home. At home, yes. I own one home, which is much better than owning multiple homes. Right. So it wouldn't necessitate a home rack, which is a Wayne's World joke that you may not get on second thought because... Yeah, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> because Wayne's World is awful and we've all wiped it from our memories? No, it's because Dave Cameron has no concept of popular culture. Um, right. But anyway... That voice that's come out of the mists is the voice of our friend from uh, the frozen north, although less frozen at the moment, Matt Clausen. Matt, how are you? We're not friends anymore. You and since I? Since you did not include me in the panel of experts. I'm friends with Joe, and I'm friends with Dave. I think that's going to change by the end of this. Uh, uh, I don't think you're going to be friends with anyone. Well, you're really going to butter me up? No, 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 no. I'm saying they're not going to be your friends either. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I do my best. What are you doing up there, uh, Clausen, in the frozen north? You studying the philosophy or whatever? <laughs> I'm a primary caregiver for a young boy who's disappointed me greatly. I think he's right-handed. Uh. <laughs> so we got to keep having him until we get a lefty. How is this kid going to do when he gets 32? Well, do you know what uh, Billy Wagner did uh, was he just had a, a neighbor bully uh, break his right arm, and that's how he learned to throw lefty. Um, well, I, I think it happened twice, actually. And then he well, that'll probably happen when he's playing hockey up here, like all the other freaks. That's good. It's a fast way to uh, um, 
alienate us from an entire country, yeah. Yeah. I mean, not the most important country, but a country. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, good. Uh, and also calling us from the biggest of apples. Uh, he was on uh, some sort of uh, furlough last week. I don't know what was going on. Joe Polakowski. Yes, yes, it was a, just a, a well-earned vacation, I think. Now, did you go on a, on a proper vacation, or was it a staycation? Oh, no, it was a vacation. Nice. Are, are, are you allowed to uh, divulge? Where are you? Oh, uh, Hilton Head, South Carolina, where all I did was lay by the pool. Oh, right. Now, did you drink any uh, Long Island iced teas or anything of that sort? Uh, no, it was all beer, all trip. Oh, really? All beer, all trip? Even laying out by the pool? Well, I guess I could, I could see that. But you don't, care yes, for, you don't care for a refreshing spirit every now and then? Uh, no, I'm more of a uh, scotch and wine guy, which, you know, beer is the superior choice out of those when laying out by the pool. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. I've never mixed scotch and wine, but it doesn't seem like it tastes very good to me. <laughs> no, 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 it, it, it's not, Carson. Okay. But, it, uh, it, you know, it does a number on the liver. Oh, an old, an old Polish rarity, rare, special rarity or something. Uh, anyway, uh, well, that's very good. Uh, you seem all to be living uh, uh, modestly interesting, if not very interesting lives. Uh we haven't talked for some time, though, so there is some baseball to catch up on. Um, maybe we'll start with the present and work backwards. Uh, probably the most, um, I guess, interesting-ish thing that I also happen not not to understand at all um, is the recent announcement by uh, Bud Selig and, I guess, Major League Baseball as a whole uh, that they'll be doing nothing to aid um, or that they have not approved the McCourts and or the Dodgers deal, uh, television deal. Uh, I don't understand it very much. Let's turn. We're going to turn to Dave Cameron to see if he understood, uh, understands any more about it than that. Dave, what's going on with Frank McCourt, the Dodgers, and Major League Baseball at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think really, if anyone who wants to get caught up on this, I linked to an article um, from It's About the Money. I think it was written by Literary Bearheart. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. But it was basically a pretty thorough recap of what's going on and why Major League Baseball declined to allow the McCourts to steal with Fox. Essentially, what's happening is is part of the divorce settlement, Frank and Jamie McCourt reached an agreement that they would divide their property along lines, assuming that this deal with Fox went through. Essentially, the Dodgers were selling 17 years of television rights for significantly below market value and extracting cash for themselves in the process. So they were basically taking a bad deal for the Dodgers to help them pay off their own divorce because they can't agree who should get which mansion and uh, which swimming pools they get to inherit for the rest of their lives. So they basically the Dodgers are financing the divorce of two ridiculously horrible, awful, rich people, and Major League Baseball said, we're not going to allow you to do this any further. Now, what was the reason that Frank McCourt was allowed to be an owner to begin with? Yeah, it's a, a lack of homework on someone's part. I think the uh, we, we've talked about how Bud Selig is notoriously uh, stingy when it comes to handing out Major League teams. Mark Cuban will never be allowed to buy a Major League team as long as Bud Seelig's alive, I'm fairly sure. Um, but this is why. Is they have, there are some pretty lousy rich people in the world who are only interested in their own personal gain and are totally willing to strip any kind of enterprise of any kind of value in order to further their own you know, pursuit of cars and houses and such. Um, and you know, that's essentially what Frank McCord has done is strip the Dodgers of value to enhance his own lifestyle, and, you know, having a strict policy on who can own a Major League Baseball team is actually a pretty good idea in order to keep people like Frank McCourt out. In this case, it's just someone forgot to do their due diligence, or uh, they failed somehow, and they uh, allowed a really terrible owner into the sport, and this is why, 
you know, they need to make sure in future uh, ownership purchase uh, decisions, they need to do a little more homework and make sure that the people buying the team are actually, you know, interested in using the team to win baseball games rather than as an ATM. Yeah. yeah. They should have got crack investigator uh, George Mitchell on the case. Um, that's an aside by Matt Clausen. But Clausen, I actually have uh, an actual question for you. Yesterday you tweeted something to the effect of uh, um, why am I, Matt Clausen, not allowed to borrow money from the Royals to buy the Royals? Um, and that's actually a question that I don't know the answer to. Why is that true? I have no idea. I, I'm with you, Carson. This whole thing's – I mean, I understood it a little bit at first, and I granted my reading comprehension is like on a seventh-grade level, but that's still like two grades high enough to read the sports page, so uh, two grades higher than is required to read the sports page. But still, yeah, I mean, I kind of understood. But I think – I don't think it's crazy to say it's confusing as to how basically McCourt could – spread things around, I mean, just the initial part, uh, with rebates from Fox, and then some, I don't, basically it came down to, is, is in this great article that uh, Dave linked to, uh, he ended up, what is that like, essentially borrowing money from the Dodgers to buy the Dodgers, and I, I don't care how many steps there are, that's still confusing to me, so why can't I, I can live much less extravagantly than, than Frank and Jamie McCourt, uh, yeah. Well, Mrs. And, Fingers and I, and if could just, we only need like two or three mansions. We'll we'll live and swim. We'll live in a mansion and swim in the same pool. There, we won't need a separate mansion just to swim in the pool. Um, she doesn't need a drive. She ain't getting a driver. That's for sure. After this old McCourt thing. Uh, oh, and Matt, don't remember. You need just use a self storage to store your furniture, not a mansion. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, right. That's right. And if and if we're having the house cleaned, I don't need to. St- we'll just go to the other mansion. I won't have to stay in a thirty thousand uh, dollar a month hotel or whatever. Well, I think this is. I think we should. I think we should go for this. Uh, David Glass looks like he's been uh, dead for like three years already. Anyway, why why am I not owning the Royals? You um, right. Well, maybe you just haven't tried hard enough. That's a, that's the thing. Hey, Joe Paul. Um, as a as a you're you're a, you're a baseball analyst, of course, but you're also a baseball fan. Is this is this the stuff? Uh, uh, does this interest you at all? To th- I mean, I guess interest isn't the right word. But as a fan, do you wish this weren't an issue? Um, no, I mean, what do you mean by wish this weren't an issue? Wish that McCourt didn't get into this drama in the first place, or wish that people didn't pay attention to this? Well, no, I mean, I guess if it happens, you have to sort of pay attention to it. So I guess the question is, uh, but does it sort of um, does it make you unhappy to have to think about people behaving so poorly that they? I drive a uh, storied baseball franchise into the ground. Oh, of course. I mean, when I read uh, the article again that Dave cited, I think everyone who's kind of at all interested in this should, should read it because it's a really good and comprehensive look at the situation. You know, the the primary emotion I felt was kind of you know dis, dismay and, and uh, you know distress that how could they let how could Major League Baseball let this happen in the first place. And, you know, they're, they're in for more trouble, too. Even if they seize the franchise, the most distressing part about the entire article to me was how McCourt set up all these affiliates and subsidiaries to the point where even if MLB seizes control of the team, it sounds like they aren't going to control the revenue streams. Well, right. I mean, the, the, yeah, sorry, if I can jump here. Joe, Joe, the thing you're talking about, one of the things you're talking about, I mean, was how, how he basically broke the Dodgers, whatever it was called before, he broke it up into a lot of different holdings, right? So even if... I obviously I don't understand how this all works out legally. Like, so basically he owns the stadium now. The Dodgers, the franchise doesn't. Right. So potentially, the the new owners 
could have Frank McCord as our landlord. Yeah. Um, now, and I think we should uh, we should make it clear the, the article that you cited, Dave, that was by Larry Kessler. It, it's about the money. Yes, correct. Okay. Um, and and yeah, and uh, as everyone has basically said, uh, that's the place to go, I guess, to get um, the layman's uh, rundown uh, on on the events that I guess have led to this and what it is that that Frank Frank McCord has done uh, to the Dodgers and uh, I guess what will happen in the future. At least you know some basic. Uh, speculations. Um, in terms of, well, so what do we have now, Dave Cameron? What's the? I mean, what is going to happen to the Dodgers like this year and then the next couple years? Yeah, I think the next week should be pretty interesting. Uh, the assumption is the next Thursday, so basically a week from probably when this podcast goes up, or well, maybe the day this podcast goes up. Current <laughs> schedule, uh, major, the McCourts will not be able to make payroll. That is the uh, general assumption that they do not have the money to meet their uh, end of the month payroll uh, for June. Part of that is because they hilariously owe Manny Ramirez $8 million in deferred money. <laughs> so Manny Ramirez is going to continue to sink the Dodgers uh, long after he's gone. Um, so the assumption is that once they are unable to make payroll, Major League Baseball will step in and say, you have uh, defaulted on your responsibilities as an owner. Uh, we are seizing control. You are no longer in control. They've already put a steward in place to monitor what the McCourts are doing, but the next step is probably just to take control completely, to which point Frank McCourt will sue, um, we'll have months of litigation, and my guess is that at some point this summer, uh, the Major League Baseball owners are just going to give Frank McCourt something like $50 million, or I'm mean, you know, I'm just pulling that money right. out of straight air, thin air, but I mean, some amount of money, and they're going to say, go split this with your wife, and go live on an island, and never hear from us again, and so um, my guess is that there will be a settlement, Frank McCourt will lose the Dodgers, most likely, the Major League Baseball will set it up so that he loses control of these shell companies that he set up as well. I can't imagine the Major League Baseball is going to allow Frank McCourt to be the landlord of whoever tries to buy the team. I think Major League Baseball will just buy him out entirely, um, including all these little subsidiaries and shell companies that he's set up in order to try and divest value into his own personal account. So I think at some point after the lawsuits are settled, um, Frank McCourt will essentially get paid off, and he'll go away, and Major League Baseball will own the Dodgers, they'll own the stadium, they'll own the parking lots, they'll own the ticket revenue, they'll own everything, and they'll own the team to someone for something like a billion dollars. Oh, yeah. So that's, that's an interesting point, Dave, too, because that kind of makes McCourt, uh, it seems like he's this is the ploy all along, that he, you know, he, he might lose the team but still end up a winner, because if they can't seize those businesses, and I don't think they can from my you know, base understanding that he's still going to make a, a good penny off the deal from Major League Baseball when they have to buy all those holding companies from him so they can get the t- the season ticket revenue back and they can get the uh, the, the the stadium back. Yeah, Frank McCourt might be a really lousy human being, but he's not a bad businessman. Like he understood what he was doing when he was setting up all these companies, and it was actually a pretty smart, if completely unethical and terrible idea. And, uh, you know, it's not going to be easy for Major League Baseball to get these things back. But if I'm betting between Frank McCourt being able to hire lawyers without any money and Major League Baseball and their army of lawyers, which team of lawyers do I think is going to win? I'm, I'm betting on Major League Baseball. And so I think eventually, you know, Frank McCourt doesn't have any money. He can barely pay his own divorce attorneys. He's not going to be able to fight the machine that is Major League Baseball for too long before he just runs out of cash. So I think eventually we're just going to have a war of attrition. Frank McCourt will say, I give up, take everything, just give me, you know, some giant check, and I'll go away. Yeah, and, you know, Major League Baseball, you wreck one of their franchises, they don't mess around. Uh, it may be two, three years before McCourt gets an expansion franchise in Florida. <laughs> 
Well, speaking of Florida, um, and speaking of um, owners uh, with a questionable of questionable moral fiber, uh, we turn uh, our attention to the Marlins and owner Jeffrey Loria, who I don't know if he's done anything. Um, well, at, I mean, not, at, this week he has not done anything of a sort of Frank McCourt level. Um, um, miserableness, totally a word, just made it up, don't worry about it. Um, But uh, the Marlins have been a team in disarray. Uh, They are, I believe, on the field. They're 1 for 20 in June, 1 for 19, something to that effect. Uh, They've recently fired their hitting coach uh, and rehired, hired, um, I guess probably Eduardo Perez, is that a fact? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Who... uh, Seems like a nice guy, but doesn't have a lot of uh, uh, coaching experience. Uh, well, they're gonna have they're just gonna have him coach the writers. They're gonna have Ben Broussard uh, uh, coach the lefties. <laughs> That's a joke. That's a joke. It's not actually true. I don't think. Uh, and um, <laughs> there's also been a sort of uproar from the uh, the upper levels of um, the Marlins um, regarding uh, Logan Morrison, who is a uh, darling of social media, in particular the Twitter, where he spends a lot of time. Um, and it's actually pretty funny and uh, I guess candid in that. Um, so, Joe Paul, let's start with you. Uh, the Marlins, in terms of um, in terms of how depressing that situation is and what's most depressing about it, where where would you place that? <laughs> well, I mean, the most depressing part about the thing is that there's no sign that any of this is going to change because it seems that all their woes stem from ownership and not from uh, any particular section of management. Uh, it just seems that you know, every time something goes wrong, you could point to something with the Loria Sampson, uh, you know, the, their reign of terror over or the Marlins franchise. You, you can point to that as the reason why they're why they're kind of failing. And you know, I'm, I'm not going to say that they're you know they're the reason that the Marlins you know are have have been on this like what was it one in eighteen skit or something along those lines. Uh, you know, they're not the reason for it, but it's just a symptom of you know the ownership and the philosophies they've. Uh, you know, they brought to the organization, and you know it's one of those situations. And I, I'm very familiar with it, uh, being in New York. Uh, you know, being a fan of the of the Knicks in particular, it's it's almost along the same lines that, you know, you can bring in good management and they can bring in good players, but it's going to be very difficult for the franchise to change, change, you know, turn around it and change for the better if without new ownership. And in both cases, it doesn't seem like that's coming anytime soon. Yeah. So here's the thing: is in this, you know, similar to the McCourt situation, but the 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 feeling as a fan of baseball that I have in reaction to this is is one only of sort of like um, confusion and helplessness, right? Because there's nothing, uh, there's very little that I could do, um, you know, to affect change in this situation. So like, what I, I guess like the problem is constantly for me is like still wanting to enjoy baseball but also you know not wanting to you know totally ignore this thing that's very relevant to the health of the game and just like you know like the pleasures of watching it so what what is the and now you as a new york fan who've you know lived through and, and observed very strong and sometimes irrational leadership i wonder do you have a technique for us um no not really because when i lived through the bad yankee years i was you know I guess I became a fan at age four or five, and by the time I was in high school, they were back to winning again. So, so you ever it, had to it, see the, uh, with the, the, the... Well, I mean, I went to this, you know, when my daddy used to take me to the stadium when I was younger. Um, you know, it was always, you know, they were 
they were so bad and we had to, you know, potentially sit through terrible losses where the pitching would give up 13 runs. Uh, so it, it's, I don't know, it's, it's just a, so different coping for someone who's an adolescent and beyond and someone who's below that age. Because when you're below that age, you know, it's, it's hard to get, I found it hard to get mad just because I was a, you know, a joyful youth. But at this, at this point, uh, I guess in dealing with the Knicks, you know, I really just ignored the Knicks for a while. Uh, and I, I don't suggest that for any of the Marlins fans because they do have some legitimately good players on the team and they have a, they should have a bright future with all that talent. But, um, you know, there's, there's only so much you can do when you know that every time you're about to turn a corner, there's going to be that huge roadblock and that roadblock controls everything and it's not going away. Yeah, well, it makes it not too funny. Uh, Clausen, you've you've dealt with mediocrity for years. Not your own personal mediocrity, but... Well, that too. Right, yeah, I understand. Uh, I don't know. You know, I think the thing about the Marlins is that, in some ways, uh, Jeffrey Laurier is Bud Seagull's kind of owner. Why do you think he got another team after he destroyed the Expos? I mean, maybe he just uh, dug him up and buried him once again, but still, it, it didn't help. Uh, what do you mean by his type of owner? What, do you, what about his... Well, look, they, 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 you never hear about the Marlins having trouble making payroll. I'm pretty sure I could pay it this week, you know, if they needed it, given what it is. Because he keeps payroll down. He, I mean, yeah, he's embarrassing. It would be nice they are more competitive, but they're not awful. They have to think they're not dreadfully awful. He's he's not going through some, you know, uh, horrible, ugly divorce. He treats his, you know, he does not great, obviously, to work for him because he's got to go through managers a lot, but I've never seen that before. Um, they, they, they're good enough to where you can kind of pretend like they're exciting, uh Every few years, he. But you know, and of course, the most important thing is he 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 ripped off the taxpayers for for a big stadium, which is really the key thing. If you can do that, you're in with Bud. So, um, that's probably a little unfair, but I don't think too unfair. Well, that, that definitely is one of the uglier legacies of Major League Baseball over the last well, few uh, years, right? Uh, is the relationship well, with taxpayers? Well, on professional sports generally. I mean, look, I, I I love sports, but that's why you know sort of have to keep. Uh, uh, sort of like George when he's single and he's engaged, you kind of have to keep sports Matt and socially aware Matt. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not a guy who's going to be, you know, at every single protest, but it pisses me off when I think about it. But anyway, yeah, but, yeah of course what's frustrating is what Joe alluded to, is that they have, they're, they're, they're not mediocre because they keep signing a bunch of, uh, I mean, at least they're not just constantly signing, you know, these 29-year-old, you know, one-and-a-half to two-and-a-half win retreads just to tread water. They've got legitimately good young talent uh, in, in Stanton. And I, I don't know, I, I, I'll i admit that I didn't follow that much of the prospect. I've been surprised uh, by how well Morrison is hit. Uh, and indeed, both those guys look like superstars. Gabby Sanchez is, is probably over his head. He's a good player. Annabelle Sanchez, uh, and I... Looks like he could be another superstar. Josh Johnson before he was hurt. I mean, these are these are not just good players. I mean, these are well, I mean, these are these are already good players. And uh, I think John Johnson probably already. These guys who could be you know big time stars, and yet they don't make an effort with the payroll. Uh, obviously, it's the manager's fault that they're starting uh, Wes Helms or whoever started the season at third base. And it's just depressing because it's not. It never becomes a big enough mess for them to do anything about it. Or for Bud to even think they need to do something. I mean, I shouldn't blame Alan Siegel, but for anybody to think something needs to be done about it, other than people complaining. But the problem is they don't have enough fans to make any noise for them to complain. Yeah, well, you would think that would make them not profitable, but they are profitable. So. Well, because they take the revenue sharing and don't spend any of it on it. Right, well, they could just sit there. This has got to be, I mean, Joe should be happy, since I'm pretty sure Morrison or Stanton's going to end up on the Yankees anyway. Sorry, generics. I, I hate it when small market fans do that, but I mean, yeah, I mean, 
it'd be nice, maybe if the Marlins would do something with these guys, but uh, I don't know. They don't. The one thing they don't seem to have done that the Rays seem to have done is is uh, maybe I'm missing something. I mean, they, of course, they did it with Hanley, but to, to lock up one of these guys really early. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. You're right. Cameron, do you have a proposal to make teams like the Marlins, uh, I don't know, have to like be forced to compete? Because I know you always have proposals. Do you have a proposal for this one? Well, you know, I think one of the interesting things is in a system where there's a zero-sum game, if, if there are winners, there have to be losers. And so I think, you know, Boston and New York have set up a system where they're never going to be losers. So we have at least two franchises that are going to win every year in perpetuity until the rules are changed. Uh, they might have a down year here and there, but they're always going to be at the top of the pack. So by default, you're going to have fewer wins for the rest of the league to spread around. You have to have some franchises that are going to not be competitive. And so I think what Bud Feeling wants is for those franchises that are not competitive uh, on a regular basis to be somewhat profitable, not embarrassing, not have any uh, nasty divorce settlements, and generally just stay out of the limelight. And so that's why I think Bud Feeling likes Jeffrey Loria is the Marlins are not actively hurting baseball. They're not helping baseball. They're not developing a fan base in Miami. It could be a wasted opportunity. But the Marlins aren't dragging down the sport like the Dodgers currently are or the Mets are. Uh, they're not an embarrassment for the league. And so I think as long as Jeffrey Loria is making payroll and developing good young talent that can then move to other franchises and basically act as baseball's farm system, Bud Feeling doesn't have any problem with what the Marlins are doing. And so the fact that they now have a new stadium and he can point to hope and future, and even if it's all BS, he can sell Miami fans on the fact that they're trying and, you know, get the 15, 20,000 to the park or whatever it is that they need to stay above water, there's no impetus for Major League Baseball to do anything about what Jeffrey Laurie is doing because he's allowing uh, the pipeline to continue to flow, and that allows the New Yorks and the Bostons and the Chicagos of the world to make a lot of money and have a team to beat up on. So I think from Major League Baseball's perspective, the system works just fine. Yeah, but what if it makes Carson Sestule sad? Is that... Well, you know... I don't get some great poetry out of it. No, I don't... Uh, so mean. Uh... Wait, what was it, Cameron? It, I, I was going to say, like, if we uh, legislated against things that made you sad, yeah. we would have a very strange set of laws in America. Hmm. Yeah, that's probably true. It's probably not the best reason to pass laws. Charlie Blackman would be in a great mood. Yeah, he would. Well, he's a great baseball player. Um, okay, all right. So from those things, uh, let's let's move to the field. Um, a player who... Um, uh, among the players uh, who have uh, fractured their wrists uh, over the last couple of days, one of them is the best player in baseball, uh, Albert Pujols. Um, I imagine there are at least two, if not three, ways to look at this. Um, one could be through, uh, you know, just uh, how many wins the Cardinals will lose in his absence. Another could be um, what this, uh, uh, what this most recent injury, um, you know, I guess how it affects uh, Pujols' uh, Long-term prospects for a for a long-term uh, contract. Uh, Cameron, what what's sort of most interesting or most significant about this pool thing to you? And in in, in, uh, in, uh, in five words or less. No, no, as many words as you want. <laughs> uh, to me, I think the interesting thing is how this is going to change the perspective of Cardinals fans. I think in general we've seen that 
baseball fans overrate superstars and their value and how much they actually matter. But when a player, you know, when you see that the best players in baseball, Albert Pujols in his prime at 100% healthy was only, you know, an eight-win player, essentially. And you can survive the loss of an eight-win player, especially if you were paying that guy a lot of money and now you can go pay someone else a lot of money. It's really not this, like, drastic change. Uh, you know, the Mariners lost Alex Rodriguez and won 116 games the next year. I mean, we've seen these kind of things happen where fan bases realize that one player maybe doesn't make as big a difference as they originally thought, even if they are a great player. And so, to me, the interesting thing will be what happens to the St. Louis fans' perspective of how valuable Albert Pujols is for the rest of his career if the team doesn't actually get any worse with him on the bench. And I really think, like, with Lance Burton moving to first base and John Jay taking over in right field, this is not the monstrous downgrade that's going to cripple the team. They might lose a win. They might lose two wins if they're out for a couple of months. Um, but this is not going to be a pennant race changing, oh my God, we can't compete without Albert Pujols, we have to find him, whatever happens. I think the fan base could realize that this could be their future as John Jay and right field, Lance Berkman at first base, if they don't re-sign Albert Pujols. And if the Cardinals win and make the playoffs and Pujols isn't a part of the summer pennant race, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the fans in St. Louis said, you know what, maybe we don't need to pay $250 million to a guy in his 30s and all of a sudden the demand from the public turned against giving him some kind of 10-year, $300 million deal, and the Cardinals felt a little more emboldened to take a hard-line stance and say, you know, we're going to go 8 200 and anything above that, we'll let you go to Chicago. I, I don't think that that's going to end up being. I still think Pujols will resign in St. Louis eventually, but if the Cardinals play well without Albert Pujols, I wonder what that will do to the St. Louis fans' perspective of whether he should stay or not. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Klassen, uh points to that effect. Uh, I know that you were sort of interested in in how that uh, summer pennant race might unfold. Yeah, uh, I guess I don't have, I, I don't, I don't differ from Dave much on this. I think he's right. We can put John. I don't think John Jay's a world beater by a long, long stretch, but he's better defensively than Berkman. I think it costs him two wins at most. Uh, I guess I read this morning that. Uh, somewhere, uh, I don't remember where, that Pujol, it'd be, you know, they're saying four to six weeks is going to be closer to six than to four. But still, that's uh, two wins, because they're not replacing with a replacement-level player. Uh, and Pujol is stunning, I have to say. I mean, it just seemed like it wasn't that long ago that he was, you know, struggling, you know, at an OPS in the 700s, which even for Pujols, of course, is unbelievable. And now, <laughs> you know, he's back up. He's, his woe was back up to 375. You know, he just casually... Had hit, you know, had a you know, 500 woba for the past few weeks, but still, uh, even yeah, at, at his best as an eight-win player, which he may or may not be anymore, uh, it's going to cost them two wins tops, and they're winning the division right now. Uh, now the two other teams in there are good. Uh, Cincinnati is in third, I think, uh, two and a half games back, and uh, you know they are playing well. You know, their their pitching seems like uh, will improve. Uh, uh, Volk was back, and maybe uh, uh, Bailey and it seems to be pitching well and stuff like that. Uh, you know, the group, but these are not world-beating teams. The Cincinnati definitely has questions still about their pitching in other areas. The Brewers, uh, you know, uh, Dave had the post about Beckett and uh, uh, Dips theory Friday. I was thinking, you know, Grinky. <laughs> sorry, no, I, you knew I was going to have to bring this up. I mean, it is it, basic, basically has a. a Better strikeout to walk ratio than the deadliest relievers in the league right now. And he's still, he got an ERA over five. But that's the part of the weakness of the Brewers team. They have basically no, they have good fielders in center. 
<laughs> and that's about it. Man. Maybe it's okay now, but you got Betancourt, Braun, and Fielder. That's a pretty terrible trio. I mean, that kind of so they got we, you know, and they, they've got a stars and scrubs approach. They can, have, and, and, you know, they're still not winning the league, and, it, it, and the guys are actually playing well. Um, they're, you know, Braun and Fielder. I mean, they're not way over their heads, but they're, they're not. It's not as if they have some guys struck. Well. Uni's just beating Uni. They don't have guys struggling who they can, ex- other than maybe McGahee, who they expect to really get a boost from. So it's not like the Cardinals are in a, in a bad situation. So okay. that ramble- with did you, did you leave me there for a sec? No, no, no. Uh, yeah. I, I, so, I, yeah, I, only mentally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, I think what's interesting, you know, Dave's, Dave's point about them uh, uh, going through the summer and seeing they can, you know, maybe make the playoffs without Pujols is a good one. And what's interesting with that is, you know, maybe they could spend less money and, and yeah, Jose Reyes. I mean, even though that would mean get, letting go of Ryan Terrio, which may be too much. <laughs> <laughs> too much for anything to handle. Yeah, too much for anything. Joe, Joe, Paul, do you have, uh, I mean, your perspective on the, uh, this is how unfolding, is this any, anything beyond what these, these two uh, jerks have said? Or uh... Well, I just wanted to kind of expand on Dave's point because it's been something I've been following with another team over the past few years, uh, Justin Morneau and the Twins. In 2009 and 2010, the Twins kind of went on tears when he went on the DL. Uh, in 2009, they were they were behind the division in September, and they surged uh, ahead to win the division at the end of the year when Morneau was out with a back issue. And then last year, they were kind of middling and they were you know not performing the expectations. And then he went out with a concussion, and they you know they rallied and they were one of the best teams in baseball in the second half. Um, so you know, it, it, and then you know, even recently he went on the DL uh, about a week ago or so, and they rattle off eight straight wins. Uh, so you know, it's an, it's an interesting effect to see what the Cardinals can do with Pujols because, um, and I'm not sure, and that's if you're going to gauge popular opinion based on that, I haven't heard any Twins fans that suggest that the team might be better off without Morneau. Um, you know, even though they won with him out of the out of the lineup, I'm not sure that even if the Cardinals win without Pujols, I think he's you know so deeply ingrained in the in the in the uh, St. Louis culture that, you know, I don't think there's going to be much of a sentiment that, hey, they can win without them, they can spend the money elsewhere. Um, you know, I think it would take something a little more dramatic than a six- to eight-week absence for that to happen. Right. Uh, now, on the topic of uh, Albert Pujols, I think we can all agree that he is very good and that he probably will be good for some time. Uh, and it's for this reason that uh, Jack Moore took him sixth overall in our recent uh, Fangas franchise player draft. Um so I, I mean, I, the, the thing to talk about, the thing, and this is uh, this is my point it, it, to some degree, is uh, I don't know if you guys noticed, but I took Mike Trout third. Yeah. Oh no, we didn't notice that at all. You didn't notice. Yeah, no, well, no one, no one made a single comment about that. Yeah, well, some of the readership noticed, and uh, I thought I would just I would submit, um, I guess, my thinking uh, uh, as to why that you had you had thinking. I did have thinking. Yeah, yeah, I did have thinking. Well, all right. So here's uh, so the basic idea is um, the way that the the rules uh, or the sort of constraints for the um, exercise were were uh, established. There was there's really no there's no limit in terms of um, how far into the future we were drafting, and uh, because there was it was like there was. No, no concept of real-life contracts and no situation specific to Major League Baseball, right? I mean, that was so those were a couple of the ground rules. And I suppose that what I was looking for in this particular case was the player who would most likely um, uh, record the greatest number of wins above replacement starting from the present 
and going to forever, um, essentially. Going, you know, like players who exist now that we know of, who would you know, some combination of um, likeliness to record a high number of war, um, and I mean, the, you know, so that was essentially the, the criteria, um, which is why, um, which is why I was o- I was always going to be looking at very young players to begin with, and I mentioned Jason Hayward as one player. Um, Andrew McCutcheon, who I think... Joe Paul, did you take Andrew McCutcheon? Oh, no, I had it planned, but my colleague Mike Axisa took him two spots ahead of me. Okay, that guy's a jerk. Um, but right, McCutcheon's also a good pick. I mean, essentially, to me, Trout is not that different from McCutcheon, um, who, I think, who I think is pretty excellent, but he's just younger and, um, and maybe has a little bit more in the way of play discipline at a younger age. And he's in double-A. And he's in double-A... <laughs> Which is maybe maybe uh, uh, something you should mention. Right, he is in double A. Well, so Kieran, he's in double A. Um, yeah. But he's also, he's not only is he the youngest player uh, posting some of the best numbers in double A, he would also be the second youngest player in high A at this point. Um, yeah. And we know that players who perform well at high levels at young ages, with some exceptions, um, but not many more than occur at the major league level uh, become excellent in the major leagues. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I think I remember having a conversation with you last year when you were watching the Futures game. I was actually in Anaheim in person seeing Mike Trout turn all these scouts into fanboys, and you didn't realize that Mike Trout was 18 at the time. You thought he was, like, 22 or 23, and you loved him then. And uh, when he informed you that he was 18, you almost fell down. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I remember, like, the day that you fell in love with Mike Trout. And uh, I can agree with a lot of the sentiments that you're stating. I just think that there's uh, risks with any player who is not in the major league that, you, especially if you're looking at guys who are young, inherently you are also looking at guys with shorter track records. And so there are... I will point back to Nick Johnson, who I believe in 2000 and 2001, whenever he was in AA, posted like a 520 on base percentage and looked like one of the next great young hitters of all time. His walk to strikeout rate was absurd. He was 20. He was in AA. Uh, Nick Johnson was like one of the best hitting prospects. But we didn't know that he was also made of glass. And so this was a thing that we just had not yet learned that was true, but we just didn't have the time frame to understand that it was true. With anyone in the major leagues, with Joey Votto or one of these guys who's been around for a while, we have more information about uh, their health, their mental status, their ability to respond to groupies, uh, just these things that have nothing to do with baseball that also impact their ability to stay on the field. I mean, you know, Josh Hamilton's cocaine problem was a real legitimate problem when he was 19 years old when in the California League, but it wasn't something that you could have necessarily anticipated would derail his career for seven years. So as much as I love Mike Trout's talents, I think to take a guy who we don't know how he will respond to the major league lifestyle, how well he'll stay healthy, um, just the things that go along with having a short track record ahead of a guy like Vada or someone who we already know those things, uh, that's tough for me. Right. Now, but what about in terms of – I'm curious as to the, whether the rest of you were picking under the same – idea of like essentially lifetime war starting starting today uh, Clausen was that you picked Ryan Zimmerman fourth overall Zimmerman's 20, yeah. 26 uh, I mean was that 
Was that your basic thinking, or did you have sort of a different way you were approaching it? Well, I was thinking starting to, I mean, a franchise player. I think mean, part of it, yeah, part of it's the risk. I mean, but look at, I mean, you talk about guys like uh, Zimmerman, Longoria, Tulo. Uh, those were the, uh, the the first two the picks went, uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, Longoria, Tulo. Uh, then, then I picked, then you picked, then you picked Trout, and then I picked Zimmerman. These are guys who have been putting up six-win seasons uh Already, we we know we have a pretty good idea that they're going to continue doing that. It's, you know, six seven, yeah, regression, blah blah. You know, you know what I mean. Consistently around six wins or, or more. Uh, that looks trout. Uh, you know, it's tough to know how the guy's going to try. We expect him to be a great player right now. For we have pretty good reasons for that. Uh, but the truth is, I mean, he would he could be a big success, and as but as a prospect, he could be a big success, be a four win player, right? I mean that's I mean that's the kind of variability. I mean people some people might be disappointed, but it's crazy to expect any prospect when they're in the minors to say, okay, this guy's gonna be a six win player. I mean I think they might have potential to do that, but there's so it's, it's just, I guess is another way of saying what Dave's saying. So it's not even just the injury issues, all the things we don't know about it, but it's you know for any prospect to make it to the majors, well maybe not as one as highly regarded as, as Trout, but uh, you know there's such a high prospect failure rate that, that even for a prospect to be a very good player. You know, four win player uh, is a success. No matter even if he was the you know number one pick, and Bryce Harper turned out to be just quote unquote a four win player for the Nationals, that was still a pretty good. That was still a great pick for him, right? right? No, no, because yeah. he made it. And he's very good, and they have cost controlled. And so we don't know with Trout. Yeah, he might end up being the next. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't know McCutcheon, but 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 we but 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 he could he he could be a big success and still not be as good as Zimmerman Longoria in those games. So here's here's my point though. When you were picking, this is this is apart from Trout. When you were picking, were you thinking this is the player who will have this is the this is the player who's remaining who will have the most wins above replacement from between now until any of the guys who are currently in the available player pool like all all are all out of baseball. Is that is that how you were picking, or were you thinking like next six years? You know, well, I was I was thinking I was thinking in the next few years because uh, I mean I don't know I, I apologize I didn't read the rules carefully enough or whatever but yeah I, well, I, I was assuming I, they were op- they were open ended I think is the point but I think well, I, I don't know wait what here's where I would jump in and say well when I laid out the uh, policies we essentially tried to dissimulate what ESPN did so that it could be a comparison of theirs to ours so we basically said throw out contracts. Don't assume that you know you have to pay this guy more than that guy. You're just going to build your franchise around this team. The assumption is that you're probably going to have any player you selected for at least five years. But I think that you know the point that Clawson made of he's looking at the next few years. There's a realistic uh, argument to be made that five years in the future, we really have no idea what any of these guys are going to look like. You could just pull names out of a hat and say. You know, Jason Hayward, Justin Upton, I have no idea what they're going to be like in 2017. If we looked back five years ago, the best young players in baseball, how many of them are still elite major league players? Not nearly as many as you'd expect based on injuries and performance things. And I mean, Andrew Jones fell off a cliff at 30. That was totally unexpected. I mean, there's just weird things happen in baseball. So I would say, and this is probably where I differed with Carson's approach, I'm not just looking at the total number of war between now and 2020. I'm looking at probably multiplying the amount of war they can give me between now and 2014 by some large factor because, you know, value now, more important than value later. So I'm not going to say a six-win player in 2012 is the same thing as a six-win player in 2018 and say that those are equal because if you can win now, you can make money now and you can spend money now and you can get fans now. You can do all kinds of things 
versus if you have a player who might be good in six or seven years, you can't do any of those things. Right. Uh, I mean, I think one way of looking at this the same way is even the first year, I mean, he could be a highly regarded prospect and try not to have a great career, but even, the, you know, these guys don't, especially with hitters, uh, well, in my uh, sort of subjective impression, don't always, don't always come up and dominate right away. They can still try not to be great players. You look at, like, uh, Eric Hosmer, who was the talk all winter, uh, justifiably so, and I still think he's going to be a, a, at least a very good player. Uh, you know, he's not exactly lighting it up right now. He's not terrible, but it's not, I mean, this is a year, this isn't a year where you're getting tons from Eric Hosmer, leaving aside the Royal situation, right? I mean, you can, you can imagine uh, getting a guy like Hosmer being a franchise player, you know, great, but it's not as if, like, if you had Zimmerman or Longoria or Tulo now, you know, barring injury, that they're, you know, well, you don't, obviously you don't know, but you have a pretty good idea they're going to be pretty awesome. Yeah, you already know that. It's not going to take him a year or two to to adjust, right? The way right. it would with a guy like Trout or like you see Hosmer doing now. Um, uh, Joe Paul, with regard to your pick, I, I'm I'm just actually as interested um, in a guy that you didn't pick as the guy you did pick. You picked Jay Bruce. Um, you said that you were considering him and Jose Reyes, who actually wasn't selected at all. No, uh, actually, there was a third in there, and the more I think about it, the more I think that if I had time, more time to pick, I might have picked him. Was Matt Holiday. Okay, well, uh, I mean, uh, let's talk about well, Reyes and Holiday. Did, did it, uh, was Holiday eventually selected? No, I don't, no, he was not taken in the first round of the draft. And you know, understandably, he's not—he's uh, not—he's he's 31 this year, uh, so I can understand why people didn't want to pick him. But I, I think you know, you talk—you know—you talked about you wanting the most possible war from here to eternity. Yeah. Uh, and my strategy was more—I wanted, you know, I—I I, really—it <laughs> was more of what I didn't want than what I did want. I didn't want there to be a chance. Even a little chance that there could be a, a lineup like Oakland, where there is no impact that there's no you know typical number three or number four hitter, um, you know I think that's a, really an offense killer. And I really you know as a, on a personal level, I really value those middle of the order bats uh, that, you know, that can drive in runs and, and produce big numbers. Um, and you know that's that's really why I was leaning towards Holiday. I, you know, I think Jose Reyes, he's not you know your typical number three number four hitter. Um, but you know, there's there are a few teams in the league that couldn't use him in the number three spot and get just as good a production as anybody else out of it. Now, um, here's the interesting thing because we had a number of guys who mentioned Reyes, um, and then no one ended up selecting him. What I mean, in terms of, do you think it's a question of just like how brilliant he is when he's when he's healthy and playing well versus the injury risk? I mean, is it as simple as that? Um, yeah, they said the injury risk was really the turnoff, and it's. Um, you know, it might be a shoddy foundation just because a guy's been injured doesn't mean he's going to continue to get injured. Uh, we've seen plenty of instances where guys get hurt a lot as youngsters and then kind of, you know, rebound and, and you know, have full healthy careers uh, after that point. But, you know, the risk there and with so many other players available on the board, uh, it just made it that much harder to justify taking Reyes when, again, you have Bruce who is younger, um, you know, has a better overall bat. Um, you know, he might not have the base stealing or anything. He might not play the premium position, but you know he's going to hit in the number three or number four spot for years to come. Uh, and that was really what I wanted it with, with the first pick in a draft. That's really what I value. Dave Cameron, you um, are clearly biased. Uh, I think we all know that. And uh, and you were able to show that off with the 18th overall pick, uh, selecting uh, Felix Hernandez. Um, I wonder, uh, you know, you, you mentioned a couple of players, um, you know, besides him, but uh, mostly as a way of sort of assessing injury risk. 
Uh, you, I believe you took the first pitcher off the board. I, I guess, uh, do you think the 18 is about right, or do you think that he could have justifiably gone higher um, with no problem? I think Felix should have gone a little higher. He was actually the second pitcher off the board because Paul Swyden took Clayton Kershaw at number 12, which to me was one of the more interesting picks for the draft, and I talked to Paul a little bit about it. And um, You know, I actually think there's a case to be made because Kershaw's really good, but uh, Kershaw had a Felix was also tough to justify. But for me, and this is one of the things that I struggled with in taking Felix, is I think in this kind of exercise, if a team really had this kind of ability to pick any player in baseball, or at least the ones that hadn't been taken already, to build a franchise around, risk management is far more important than upside uh, plays. And so like Jose Reyes, who I also considered taking and mentioned is probably the, the fallback plan if I hadn't taken Felix, Reyes is an upside play all the way. He's a six or seven win player. Uh, in his prime, when he's going well, when he's playing good defense, when he's playing 155 games a year, but there's also significant downside risk in his skill set, in his health. Uh, it's not just, well, he might end up on the disabled list, it's if all those singles don't find holes, all of a sudden your six-win player is having a two-win year. I mean, we've seen this, I've seen this up firsthand uh, with each row this year, is the singles stop going through, and all of a sudden you have a pretty terrible player. And uh, so I think the risk management issue is really what should, people should have focused on. And I think Joe did a good job taking a guy like Bruce, who's very low risk. Um, most people, I think, went for a low-risk pick. But then at 18, all I had left was high-risk options. And so I looked at Felix, who certainly, you know, as a pitcher, he's a high-risk option compared to a, a younger hitter who's not going to have the injury problems. Um, Reyes, I thought, was a high-risk thing. Matt Kemp, I think, is high-risk simply because of questions about his work ethic uh, and what his eventual position is going to be. He's having a great year this year, but he certainly didn't have a very good year the year before. Um, I, I basically looked and said, I've got a lot of risky options on the board. So of those risky options, I'm going to take the best guy right now. And Felix Fernandez is better right now than Jose Reyes or Matt Kemp or any of the other higher-risk players I could have taken. So with a lack of safe picks available, I went for the best player on the board. And, you know, a 25-year-old pitcher is uh, probably a little less risky than, you know, maybe a 35-year-old pitcher um, but there's no question I still took a risky player. I was okay with it because of how good Felix is. Yeah, that is interesting. And, and sort of looking over it now, there are um, – you can – I mean, I guess you can find warts with any of these players. But um, but I feel like with a player like Adrian Gonzalez, um, he's never – he's really never been bad offensively. Um but it, once you go down after the Felix Hernandez pick, and, and we might include the Felix Hernandez pick just because, you know, because he's a pitcher, there really are things you can point out with each player that, you know, uh, are you know, definitive. for example, like a Joe Maurer at 23 by Patrick Newman. I mean, obviously Joe Maurer is very good, but you know, he's yeah. a, a, can he catch? Right, can he catch? And you know, if you move him off of catcher, you know, what sort of player is he at that point? Um, Actually, Reed's pick. This is kind of curious. Reed's pick at number thirty is Colby Rasmus, um, who's just uh, twenty-four, which to me actually seems like a pretty good value right at the end. I don't know if maybe picking last leaves you open to value picks uh, uh, more readily because, like, whoever you pick, you could see as having upside. What, in terms of like a thirtieth overall pick, do you think Colby Rasmus makes sense, or do you think there's some inherent advantage to picking thirtieth overall, Dave? Yeah, I mean, I think Rasmus was a good selection. He's a guy that I kind of sort of considered. But I think, to me, Rasmus has um, 
some some flaws in his game, especially contact rate, I think it was a significant problem. I mean, strikeouts aren't worse than any other kind of outs, but if you strike out an awful lot, you're going to hit 240. And I think Rasmus, to me, profiles the guy who's going to need to make some real changes in his game if he's ever going to sustain at an elite level. He's more of a, a good player than a great player, and maybe he'll have Curtis Granderson's career, but I don't know if you want to build your you know franchise around Curtis Granderson. It's been high years he's having. That wouldn't have been a good idea five or six years ago. Um, you know, I think uh, Rasmus is definitely a good value pick. He's a safe-ish pick, um, but there's not maybe the upside there that you would like with uh, you know one of the first 29 picks, which is probably why Rasmus is still on the board. So, uh, in terms of um, uh, uh, pronouncing a winner, I mean, basically the only real great way we can do that, so far as I see, is um, after the last uh, player uh, on this list retires. Uh, we'll then look at the, uh, I guess, the wins above replacement that they tallied um, from the beginning to the end, and then, and then whoever is right will uh, will name a winner. That's that's how we're going to do it. Is that right, Cameron? I still think you have to uh, significantly weight future war less than present war. Carson, you just want to win after Mike Trout spins off 15 three-win seasons in a row. 15-3 wins. I don't think that would make him the winner, would it? Maybe. That's well, yeah. war. Pretty good. <laughs> good for you, Carson. <laughs> you got an above-average guy. Yeah. Maybe he and Charlie Blackman will uh, uh, be the best outfield. Uh, whatever. I don't even know what, where Blackman's an outfield, right? Oh, my God. Ugh, this is disgusting. But, he, but he's not a black man, which I say in like four million tweets about. Apparently that was the joke of the week of how Charlie Blackman is not black. No, he's not black. He's just a person who has yeah. the word black in his last name. Right. Joe Paul's not... Well, it doesn't really make sense in that context. But <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I think we're, just, uh, we're starting to destroy the internet. But before we do, let's say goodbye to everyone. Uh, let's start... Uh, we'll start north and we'll move south. Uh, Matt Clausen, um, you are a primary, primary care giver. Uh, sure. It seems like maybe it's time for you to go give some care to somebody. Uh, in any case, uh, best of luck for you, sir. Yep. <laughs> you, you always sound thrilled to uh, say goodbye. Uh, uh, Joe Paul, uh, in, again in New York City, uh, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure as always, Carson. As always, as always, Joe Paul. Oh, as always. There's not one time I haven't, I have not enjoyed doing this podcast. Right, uh, Dave Cameron. I've said it to you uh, in many private emails, but I'll say it publicly now. You're a real sweetie. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm glad that's the email you decided to disclose, and not some of the other ones. <laughs> yeah, I know the uh, the thing that takes the pictures out of my computer is a little blurry. So <laughs> anyway. Uh, uh, but yes, uh, so for the panel, um, uh, thank you to them. I am and will continue to be Carson Stooley, and this has been another edition of Fangraphs on You.